Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today, my guest is Dr. Eric Russell. Dr. Russell is the past president of the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. He was the department chair for chiropractic sciences at Parker University, and he's currently a consultant for Life University. He's also on the National Board Part 2 test team, and he has a diplomate in chiropractic philosophy. Even though we're both at Life University, I doubt I ever would have run into him if it wasn't for an introduction by Dr. Dan Lyons. We've talked with Dr. Lyons a few times on this podcast, but I thought it would be great to get another perspective on philosophy. Lately, I've received a number of questions from people regarding philosophy and practice. Hopefully, today we can tackle some of those vital questions for you. So without any further ado, Dr. Eric Russell. Dr. Russell, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and how you ended up coming in the Gonstead world and, and even in the philosophical world as well? Oh, wow. I don't know if you have enough time for that, Dr. Fowler. Um, you know, I was telling my, my name is Dr. Eric Russell. I am currently a consultant at Life University and I teach the philosophy one quarter um, class. Um, I graduated from Palmer in 1996. So my journey to start Palmer was I kind of was like one of those people that backed into chiropractic, a first generation person Um, in college. I had basically torticollis and I didn't know what that was at the time. Turned around, looked at my daughter in the backseat of car and had a locked up neck and went to see a chiropractor. And And it was actually an NET chiropractor. And for some reason, the guy adjusted me manually wasn't anything else just manual adjustments did absolutely nothing else got great results and i kind of found myself in chiropractic school six months later like it was just one of those quick quick decisions and then it felt naturally right so i was there um my journey i grew up about an hour and a half straight south of davenport so when i checked around with chiropractors and then looked around it was obviously the the best choice for me on location and what everybody else was recommending So I started chiropractic school, really not knowing anything about chiropractic, really didn't know what techniques, anything else. And I started, what I tell my students to do is date around. I went to this club, this club, motion palpation club. And I remember distinctly the club scene at Palmer was very robust when I was a student. There was a heavy Gonstead club, CBP, Pedabon, all these different techniques. So the way that I kind of went into Gonstead was, you know, a friend of mine was into Pedabon, and some of the techniques are very mathematical, very engineering and thought, and there's a lot of analysis into it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sometimes more complex of an analysis than I typically just resonates with me. And sometimes I see techniques that are very complex on their analysis, but not very specific in their application. Some of them are opposite, where there's just not a robust, but there's, and some of them are just not deep into their analysis, nor are they deep into their uh, application. And for some reason, the specificity of Gonstead made a lot of sense to me. Um, It wasn't just moving a joint for the sake of motion. It was being very specific with your input. It made sense to me on a lot of levels. Um, I grew up on a a farm. So I, I always joked that the farm boy understood Gonstead. It was something very specific, but it also just kind of made common sense to me. And that's why I gravitated towards it. My journey in Gonstead in, at Palmer was kind of, 
I was kind of a drifter, to be honest, Dr. Fowler. <laughs> it was a, um, I was heavy in Gonset Club and a, an active participant, but I was never an officer. And then I also, so I probably had 26 Mount Horbs seminars before I graduated from chiropractic school. Um, we would just drive up to Mount Horbs, put about six of us into a room. You know, we'd pull the mattress off and someone would sleep on a mattress on the floor. I always claimed a box spring because if I brought a good padding, then, you know, I could get that thing to myself. But everyone else was fighting over the mattress. Um, countless like uh, Mark Working seminars, Sherry Goble, Poe. I mean, just some of these gone set icons where there was always a seminar going on in Davenport. So tons of weekend seminars. So I had a very strong Gonset seminar track. At the same time, um, I got into uh, working with Dr. Herb Wood, and I was an intern in his office for three years. So I've always liked these Gonstead people, loved learning from Ray Clinton, um, and also in the GMI people, Roger Kasperbauer. I loved watching them adjust, but these guys are like five, six with the most fast adjustments I've ever seen. And I realized that I'm not that fast, <laughs> you know? And so learning from Dr. Wood was probably the most influential for me because just, I kind of resonated with his adjusting style and, and, and really learned a lot. So I kind of drifted through. Um, what was interesting is um, I stayed in Illinois for five years after graduation, but about two or three years after graduations, when the philosophy diplomat program came out, and I got heavily involved with that. And then we moved to Texas in 2002. So then all of a sudden, when you're looking at starting a practice from scratch, not having the same income or resources available, you kind of had to pick one way or the other. So I started focusing more on chiropractic philosophy at the time and kind of, I practiced Gonstead until I sold my practice uh, when I moved to New Zealand. So from 2000, 2002, when I started my practice till 2011, I was just a strict Gonstead practitioner, but I wasn't, I never got my um, uh, fellowship. So that's something that I kind of regret along the way. And so I've always been very friendly with Gonstead and I practice Gonstead, but I do not claim to be a Gonstead expert in any way. Well, good, but you're definitely going to be our philosophy expert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Make sure you tell Dr. Lyons that. <laughs> And I want to give him a shout out. I mean, he was in Palmer at the same time. So, I mean, we talk about what seminars you went to and you talk about who you learn from. So much learning goes on from the cohort that you're with. So, I mean, I, uh, Atla in Norway, Dan Lyons, Berger Conradson. There's just so many students that you learned from. From, you, know, you go to the seminar and you, you got to come back the night of or the week after and try to piece it together and practice. So I want to give a shout out to all the people that I went to school with that kind of pushed me along the way as well. Well, I think one of the other aspects that um, made me want to talk to you about this is um, having done it myself, knowing that you teach a philosophy class at Life, but you teach first quarter students. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> this is like the very first thing they get. And when you're deal when you're talking with students who are still pretty new in chiropractic, you have to find a way of taking these huge nebulous esoteric thoughts, <laughs> condensing them down so that people have any clue what you're talking about. So you have that practice. And so I was like, you know, that's good because really when we're talking to patients, that's what we're doing is we're taking all this esoteric thinking, but we can't just feed them all of that. If we really want to be productive, we've got to turn it into bite-sized morsels they right. can actually. Well, the students, you know, from a student perspective, 
I just tell them to date around. And then the, the question I ask students when they come up to me, like, what technique should I get into? I, I'm happy to share my experience. But what I usually tell them is, how do you prefer to get adjusted? Like, mm-hmm. that's why I also went into Gonstead, because I love to receive a great Gonstead adjustment. And then some of the other adjustments I've received just didn't have the same physiological effect and didn't feel the ease afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, that's also a reason why I went into it. So I kind of want them to understand that maybe how you prefer to be adjusted is might be the way that you would want to give an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Cause I can't imagine like wanting to receive a very osseous adjustment, but then practicing very soft techniques. It just, it, there's nothing wrong against them. I just try to be more congruent that way. So it's that process of discovery for a student that's vital. Mm-hmm. They have to start their journey. They have to go from these big concepts like what technique do I find? Where do I want to practice? What is chiropractic? There's so much diversity in chiropractic and technique and philosophical thought and identity that I tell them, it's like chiropractic is a hot mess of a profession. <laughs> like if you're looking for a uniform, everybody gets along profession, you pick the wrong one, but it is a beautiful hot mess. And so students have to kind of engage. They have to find themselves and find where they fit. And I'm okay if they do something different than me. They have a different philosophical viewpoint of me, different technique, but I want them to be congruent, you know, and that's something I always learned from Dr. Christopher Kent. It's like that congruency in Dr. Jim Tempo, that congruency is so important. So I've got many friends that practice differently or think differently than I do chiropractically. And I'm fine with it if that's who they are. And that, that certainty, I think, you know, I've always talked about their six attributes of a successful student. Certainty is the first one. And certainty comes from your philosophy. And then that, if you have that certainty, you can articulate better to patients and I always joke that whoever has, I, I think I stole it from somebody, to be honest, <laughs> but whoever has the most certainty wins. So if you're talking to a patient, the first thing is if you're stammering, if you're unsure about chiropractic, you're not sure about your technique, you're not sure about your results, that patient is going to run. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like they just know. And it's like I always I always tease students, like when you, you basically go up to ask somebody if they want to go on a date and you're like, well, do you think maybe and kind of that you'd want to go maybe if you wouldn't, if you're okay, so, you know, and it's like that just creeps everybody out. So just be certain in who you are and students have to do that discovery process and we have to facilitate it. But you also ask about patients that first step is certainty. It's like sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And if you're kind of confident in the results that you have and what chiropractic is, um, patients will follow. And my best example is we'll get speakers on campus all the time, Dr. Fowler, as you wear. Like if there's, a, if there's a speaker with high level certainty, the students will be like this. I love that speaker. I'm like, really? What did they say? And like, I don't know, but I loved him. And that's that certainty. It kind of burns, the more certainty Brian's, shines brighter like a light and attracts more moss you know more more things to it and so you just want to have that bright light and that's the first step and i've seen introverts do well in practice because they've had high level of certainty i've seen extroverts do well it's that certainty component and it's really driven by your philosophy it's like what chiropractic is and how do i fit within chiropractic is that main driver on certainty yeah yeah i agree because you're right you could be high certainty and dead wrong and you'll attract people. Yes. <laughs> you have no certainty. And people are going to... Re- and then what happens is you have no certainty, but you're right. 
And so you're thinking, I'm right. Why aren't they listening to what I have to say? And they're thinking, that guy's crazy. He has no certainty. <laughs> and so it's, you're right. It's like comparing two different things. Like they're not looking at whether you're right or wrong. They don't know. No, and, and I have patients or students all the time, they'll ask, like, what's the one thing you can say? What's the scientific study you can show a patient? And I'm like, I think in 15 years of practice, I had one person ask me for a study. Everybody else is, am I in the right place and can you help me? You know, mm-hmm. and if you answer those questions and you're ethical about your approach, that's that's basically what you want to ask for. Yeah. So the question that I've been asked a lot by a few different people is, for a chiropractor, especially a young chiropractor, so just starting to practice or maybe in practice a couple of years, what role does philosophy play for them on a daily basis? Because I don't know if you know my story. I went to LACC. So I went to a school with no philosophy and was very much, I didn't think it was necessary. Thought that philosophy was one of those optional pieces. Yeah. I could just take science and art and make it all work. And I didn't have to be in practice for very long, like probably a matter of minutes before I ran into an obstacle of me wondering to myself, why is the patient here? And perhaps more importantly, why am I here? Like, yeah. And, and that's when I realized, oh, maybe philosophy does matter. So let me, let me talk about that. Like, why is philosophy important? Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. It's like, I kind of told you that my journey through chiropractic school is heavy into Gonstead. Um, I was always taught that if you're a great adjuster, you'll be busy. Um, I was not a philosophy head in chiropractic school. That came afterwards. And you know, kind of, I started to drift outside of chiropractic school. And once I got into practice as an associate, I was like, I don't know. It was kind of felt like burnout to a degree. Like I was starting to wonder who I was and what was, and the simple question I asked is like, why can you look around the profession and you see some of these chiropractors are passionate on fire for chiropractic and others who don't like chiropractic. And I kind of started to feel like the time that chiropractic was a little bit of a job for some reason. And, and I think I could have asked to be mentored better, you know, if I reflect on that, but I was just kind of going through emotions, you know, one year out and just happy to be done with school, (laughs) but kind of quickly went through this, like, what the heck am I doing? Kind of a thing. And that was the question that drove me to philosophy. It's like, I think everybody that I saw around my inner circle and just, just people that you'd notice around, the ones that have the most certainty and loved chiropractic had a healthy relationship with chiropractic philosophy. And that's what started that path, you know, and that's kind of why I kind of made that pivot away from, you know, just being strictly about my technique, went into philosophy, pursued the diplomat, and then started teaching and just, and now, you know, whatever that has led to over the past, you know, 15 years is what's going on there. So it's, it drives your certainty. It understands who you are as a chiropractor. I think you pick your technique based upon your philosophy. I think you, your patient management procedures should be aligned with your philosophy. And I think your own personal motivation should be aligned with your philosophy of chiropractic. And to me, it's pretty simple. It's like, I, I just tell students, like, I recommend care that I want to receive or I would recommend for my family and I like my family. You know, that last qualifier is very important in there. <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up on a farm. You can't swindle people. You can't, you know, so some of the recommendations I gave were just like what you need. And I think that's what's really intriguing about your recommendations from a philosophical perspective is I'm a vitalist and wellness chiropractor, and I love to take care of pa- patients asymptomatically. 
And I also understand that patients come in based upon symptoms. So sometimes once that symptom's relieved, they're happy with care. And they're totally satisfied with you, even though you're there left as a chiropractor going, where the heck did they go? Like they must not get the message because they've stopped care. And in reality is they, whatever they decided to come in for, say low back pain, their low back pain's better and they think you did a great job. So the biggest shift I think I would recommend people to do is stop trying to think you're selling chiropractic and invite people to understand care. Like I just, I, once I went from selling to inviting, it just made the biggest shift in an alignment for me as possible. So I'm like, some people will, some won't. So what doesn't matter. I'm, my job is to invite as many people to experience chiropractic care as possible. When they're in your office, you want to have some sort of organized patient education aspect. Um, I always pick on students, but that's the that's the people I work with. They want to know, like, what's the one saying that you can tell people that they'll understand chiropractic and they'll never question it. I'm like, that. it's like a tennis ace. I'm like, that doesn't exist. In practice, you got to go up to the net and just boop the ball over the net and you want patients to return. So you just got to give these little nuggets. And I think if you have system, systematic and organized things that you educate patients on, that's how they build that understanding of chiropractic. So, you know, patient education is vitally important. Your philosophy is vitally important in that journey. Um, yeah. And you have to have it or else it, it underpins everything. And without a good philosophy, you're, you're drifting is basically the sense of it. Yeah. And I, I found for me that it was the philosophy was the glue that held my science and my art together. Yeah. And yeah. They're not independent. Right. And, and, the, and they really were kind of going independent. And then for that congruency you're talking about, the philosophy creates the congruency between the two. So it becomes the glue that holds the two together. And, and it's kind of a, it's really up to the individual. You know, I mean, I was fortunate enough to go to a school where kind of philosophy was all around, even though I wasn't actively pursuing it. It's still like was. So when I decided to go into it, there was stuff I could draw upon. But, you know, I think there's a spectrum within chiropractic of mechanism and vitalism. You have some heavy vitalistic schools. You have some heavy mechanistic school and some schools are in the middle. But students represent that spectrum. Every class I teach at a vitalistic school will have some mechanists in it and some vitalists in it. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the students that go to an institution that's oppositional to their viewpoint actually come out pretty strong because they're always kind of swimming against the stream and it kind of sharpens the, you know, the knife's edge a little bit for them philosophically. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't matter where you went to school. It's kind of just a matter of, of finding your path, being congruent with it and your viewpoints and kind of moving forward. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. I am. Um, there's times I think back on where I went to school and could I've gone somewhere else and would have made a difference, but really I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't gone to the school that I went to to become who I am today. And I think you're right that, it being tilted towards one side forced me to dive into the other side. So what happened was our bookstore would very rarely carry green books. And I'm pretty sure at that time I was the only person buying any of them. So I <laughs> one, And then a few, a few weeks or months later, they'd replace it and I'd buy that one. And I was doing this. So I have a small collection of green books and, yep. and, and my favorite one is uh DD Palmer's 1910 text. Yeah. But the one that made the biggest difference on my brain and my philosophy was actually, and a big part of the change was right there in the title. It was BJ Palmer's book, um, evolution or revolution. Mm -hmm. And the concept of, is this the next evolution of healthcare or is this a revolution of healthcare? Right. And that simple thought for me at that time in the late nineties 
grabbed hold of my brain. I was like, yeah, clear. Is it an evolution or a revolution? And I saw that a lot of my classmates saw it as an evolution and I saw it as a revolution. And that, yep. that was the philosophical difference that occurred. And, and to be honest, I think the, the institution that employs both of us is the best chiropractic institution in the world. And you should send all your students and all your money there and refer. So let's just put that on the table now. Yeah. <laughs> but I have a bias. Yeah, I, I do too as well. Um, and, I th- and actually a large part of that isn't just the institution itself, but it's actually the people, the yeah. people who do the teaching. From the time I got there and started meeting people in the different classes doing different things, the people who teach there are are excellent. Everybody's excellent at what they do. And so yep. uh, that makes a big difference too. But we also all care about our students understanding all these things. Because even though I'm teaching Gonstead, I can have a conversation about vitalism versus mechanism and that kind of thing. And so I think that that's something you have to develop no matter where you go. Because when you're in practice, you're going to have to do that. Because your population that comes to see you is not going to be a little pocket. It's going to be everybody. So you yeah. need to be adaptable. And you need to be able to handle different different ways of thinking. You know, I, I think to summarize what we were talking about, for me as a vitalist, I would love everybody who needs vitalistic care, but some patients come in very mechanistically in mindset and the care that you delivered made them happy. So I always had a very systematic way of educating patients, like visit one through visit 12 was very planned out. Um, I would make sure there was a small thing I wanted to teach them. It's actually the same assignment I'm giving my students right now is, Instead of a midterm or final that was heavy multiple choice, I actually randomly assign chiropractic philosophy topics and I make my students give me a one minute video as they would explain it to a patient. Mm -hmm. So you've got to take these complex, big ideas and make it into a bite sized nugget for patients. And I have found that most patients are usually pretty good with these concepts like innate intelligence, universal intelligence. Um, ease, dis-ease, all these concepts, you just want to learn how to say it in a way that applies to them and is relevant for their care. And if you do it in this bite-sized nugget, they understand it. And that's, you know, the, there's an interesting study by the McDonald study in 1986, and it was the most comprehensive qualitative method study on chiropractic in the world. And uh, it really focused on chiropractors in North America. And the interesting thing about that study is, you know, focus scope chiropractors, the more straight chiropractors, um, even though they represent X number of percent of chiropractors, they disproportionately made the most money. And the reason why they made the most money is they focused on education. And so, I mean, the more you educate your patients, the better they understand, the more likely they are to pay, stay, and refer. And that is really what it comes to that essence. So we talk about certainty. We have these concepts that I want patients to know that their body is self-healing, self-organizing. We call that innate intelligence. And we work with that. Health comes from within, not from without. You know, so I think sometimes as chiropractors, we get in our own way, Dr. Fowler. I, I was telling the students in class, like, Universal intelligence is a concept um, that a lot of students have struggled with. Like, why would we educate patients on this? You know, I'm like, well, I want them to see that the world is organized and they have a portion of that in their body, which is called innate intelligence. And I remember like thinking, okay, Mr. Philosophy Hotshot, let's go out and educate your dad on what that is. My dad was a farmer, green farmer, not a chiropractor, smart, you know, but had high school education. And I remember like feeling all like, you know, angsty and it's probably like nervous energy out the, out the Wahoo, you know, and I remember we were out on the farm and I told my dad, and I said, dad, nature's intelligent. And he just looked at me like, well, no, 
<laughs> Man, what's wrong with you? It's like, of course it is. It's like I, the farmer works with seasons. You know, they understand that nature's intelligent. It's like, uh, so it's like we get in our own way. And I tell students that chiropractic philosophy is not weird. Chiropractors make chiropractic philosophy weird. So patients don't have the same weirdness around chiropractic philosophy as chiropractors have. So that is kind of the revelation I had after that interaction. So consistent education, bite size, don't be afraid to quiz your patients on it again. And you just want a systematic, you can't expect them to understand chiropractic on their own. It's your responsibility as the chiropractor to educate them. And I just do little bite size, planned out, universal intelligence, innate, what an adjustment is, you know, and I just kind of go that way. Benefits of care, why Gonstead's a great technique. Those are all little things that you'd want to educate in little bite-sized nuggets for your patients and quiz them on it. Like when they come back in, it's like, hey, last time we talked about subluxation, say that back to me. What do you think that is? Or you could have a T6, you know, you can go through, I know some offices that go through every vertebra and say, this week we're going to talk about T6. So instead of having a separate topic for each week, they just have one topic for the week. So T6 goes to the stomach. And do you know of anyone, you know, not all stomach issues or needs rollades or tums, you know, it might be due to a subluxation. Do you know anyone who has stomach issues? Refer them into the office. Just So you can do whatever you, you can teach mechanistically. You can teach vitalistically. You can just that consistent education aligned with your philosophy and your practice philosophy is where you want to go. Yeah, I found probably mostly when I was a student, but when people have like uh, an apprehension or some kind of a hesitancy towards Stevenson's 33 principles. It seems as though they somehow think that those 33 principles are like the antithesis of science. And there's something <laughs> suggesting how things actually work. And they don't understand that, like the time principle, that's not the antithesis yeah. of science, that is science. But it's a part yeah. of science we often forget. And forgetting it is not the same as it not being true. We just right. forget that all things take time. And nothing in the body happens instantaneously. And some things in the body take a lot of time. And yeah. you don't want to hear that, but it's still true and it's still science that no reaction is instantaneous. Well, the clinically, it's the most clinically relevant of the 33 principles in my mind. And I think so too. Sinnott talks about it a lot. And of course, there's these old diagrams of health returning in cycles. So you you experience dyshyphen ease over time and care response is going to be over time as well. So time definitely manifests itself. There's a couple of things that you just talked about. There's two things I want to highlight is number one, philosophy and science are not meant to be independent of each other. They're not mutually exclusive. And the joke I tell my students is you got to have deductive and inductive logic and philosophy and science. So you do want to do science, but then you want to start asking questions about the science you've done. Like, is this a good study? Any ways to prove it? And I said, for example, through science, we can clone a dinosaur is a good science question, but a philosophy question would be, is that a smart idea? Like, should we have a bunch of cloned dinosaurs running around? Yeah. And that's kind of what you want to have that relationship. And I think most students feel like they have to pick science, philosophy, or art and focus on one and not get yeah. well-developed in the other. And uh, I even forgot what number, oh, the 33 principles. Um, what I joke with students is I call that the hot dog effect. Like every student that I teach mostly understands that innate intelligence works with the body. But when I start breaking it down, they're like, ooh, it's too complex. So in theory, they get it, but they don't like to break it down in individual parts. I'm like, I call that the hot dog effect. I'm like, what's that? I'm like, 
you guys like hot dogs, but you don't want to know what's in it. You know, so it's like people will like innate or universal intelligence. But when you start breaking it down and getting like, what is intelligence? What's force? What's matter? What's relationship? They're all like, oh, I don't want to, you know, so know. the hot dog effect comes into play as well. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, so we, we were previously talking about a couple of concepts and I want to give them ample time for them that you were talking about. So let's talk about some philosophical ideas that are unique perspective to the world of Gonstead that we were talking okay. about. Okay. Yeah, I had two that I kind of brought to the table when we had our pre-meeting. And the first one is Stevenson's textbook talks about concussion of forces. And I think this is an interesting concept because what a concussion of force is, is you have outside universal forces that impact your body and your body has to respond to them. So, you know, number one, we talked about the, I hate the three T's cause subluxation, that, that analogy drives me absolutely bonkers because number one, it's not historically correct. It was thoughts, traumas, and auto-suggestion by D.D. Palmer. And two, it's an outside-in perspective. So if you say that germs cause disease, most chiropractors would say, no, it's not. It's the resistance of the body. And the lack of resistance is how someone gets sick. Well, the three T's don't cause subluxation. It's if your body can't adapt to them. So if you say there's potentially three T's causes, you know, subluxation, I'm like, good. But if you say they do cause, that's an outside in perspective. But really what they signify is universal forces. I mean, these are things like gravity, um, temperature. They, your body has to deal with them, whether it wants to or not. And your body is always you know, looking for changes in the internal and external environment and innate governing how that body adapts to them. So these invasive forces that kind of express their will on you are called, that's what they're called invasive forces in Stevenson's universal forces. At the same time, there has to be some sort of dealing with them from the body. And that's driven by innate intelligence. And those are called resistive forces. So, you know, if you successfully have an input and your body deals with it, that's called adaptation. And if you have an input that your body doesn't deal with, that's called lack of adaptation. And there'd be physical manifestations of that. So what's interesting about, you know, Gonstead and adjusting, and this is any adjusting technique, all the chiropractors say, I adjust. So what you're doing when you put a thrust into a patient, like a line of drive, that's number one, your educated intelligence is usually governance. Like you are determining how the misalignment is, what force you should put, what's your line of drive, all those things. Number two, that force you put into the body isn't an adjustment. It's called in, in Stevenson's an adjusting thrust. It doesn't mean it's been adapted yet. So that thrust you put on someone can be adapted and cause an adjustment. And that thrust you put on someone cannot be adjusted and cause trauma. And we've all been adjusted the wrong direction, wrong vector, and understand that concept. So what an adjustment is in, in course in Stevenson's is if the body takes that input, that universal force, and adapts it, removes the vertebral subluxation, removes the interference of the mental impulse, that's when an adjustment occurs. So that's why you can explain why patients sometimes, you know, I think about Homer Simpson in a, in a trash can. You ever see that episode where he's a chiropractor? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, people fall. And it, for, it introduces a force to the body. And if for some reason the body utilizes that force, it's the right direction, right force at the right time, the body adapts it, you can have patients get better from a fall on the ice. I wouldn't recommend it, you know, because I think the more specific the input is, 
the more likely the body will adapt to it. And that's why I think Gonset has great results is because general just mashing a bone in improving range of motion, I think the body's smart enough to deal with a lot of that. And that's why a lot of chiropractors get good results. But I always wanted to be the chiropractor's chiropractor. Like I want to be the one that they referred to when you had complex cases. And I think the more specific that input is, the, it increases the likelihood. And I want to be that person that, you know, 90, 92, 94% of my inputs are adapted by the body versus 80. So I think that specificity in your analysis of Gonstead is really critical for that. But um, you don't adjust, the body adjusts. And I say that because that's a very good philosophical comment, but then I will call you up on campus and say, hey, David, do you give me an adjustment versus saying, hey, David, will you check me? You know, <laughs> so it's like, of course. <laughs> yeah, that, that vernaculum is so common and it's just like, it's so hard to change that process. But, you know, I think it's important that you're, you're not the doctor, the, the patient's body is the doctor and it knows more than you do. And that's hard to make that shift. I think that's the best explanation of why precision is so important because uh, the other thing is you you, you both had adjustments where you give the adjustment and your head, you're thinking I did everything right. I had the right line of drive. I had the right everything. And yet when you made the adjustment, you felt like a dud and their body couldn't handle what you did. So was that because you thrusted too hard? Maybe, maybe it couldn't handle going that deep yet. It needed a shallower thrust. Maybe you thrusted too shallow and needed deeper. So there's different parts of precision that, um, I agree. We, that's why we have to focus on that precision so much because that gives them the best chance of being able to adapt to what we've done. And we kind of know when they haven't. Yeah. And I don't want to advocate just doing something and say, Jesus, take the wheel. You're like, innate, take the wheel. You, the more specific you are in the analysis, it increases the likelihood that the body will adapt that, you know, and it's just so critical for that analysis and the precision that comes with Gonstead and you know, teaching technique as you and I have in chiropractic schools, like students will have some rudimentary analysis. And if they think they get, they hear the cavitation, they're like, I moved it. And I'm like, but you didn't even like post move. Like maybe it was a segment above, maybe it was a compensatory cavitation adjustment. I don't know. Like how you found the, the subluxation, you should probably go back through that to determine if you made a change or not. Yeah. You know, instead of just being willy nilly, oh, something moved, you know, so it's like that. I love, love, love that precision, accuracy and analysis of Gonstead. Yeah, I do almost always post palpate. Yeah, because I figure if I did it right, it should I'll still feel the swelling in there. I'll still feel certain elements, but I'll feel that the body has less tension. Yeah, has uh, it made a change? Like it may not be perfect, but did it change? It should be changed in the right direction. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's one I love. The The other one, you know, we, we talk a lot about subluxation and I've, uh, I teach, I used to teach subluxation theory class, which is kind of more the, the science and the physiology of being adjust, uh, subluxation more so than the theoretical philosophical aspects. And that's actually what's on part two national board. So I'm on a part two national board testing committee. And what's interesting to me is you look at, there's basically in like, I think Leach's textbook, there's three different categories for subluxation. Number one, of course, is um, a segmental biomechanical issue. The second one is postural, and you'll see postural techniques. And then the third is tonal. And what I kind of appreciate about Gonstead, and it's what's interesting is I know several Gonstead chiropractors that kind of focus on the mechanical, 
They're mechanistic in nature. They're not really philosophical and vitalistic. They get a lot of people well, and the outcomes they're looking for are, you know, they'll do the same kind of line of drive as I would, but they are looking for mechanical outputs. And I've, as a vitalist, I always knew I would change the mechanics of that joint, but I also assumed and would see regularly. And I think of Dr. Lyons's uh, WOW post where he shows pre and post x-rays. Like we would see changes in posture on x-ray, right? Can't guarantee it, but a lot of times we'll see those change. And then the tonal aspects that patients will express ease, have quality of life changes. So I always find it fascinating that the same input, like two doctors can have almost identical input of forces to the body, but one, there's completely different expectations of the doctors, like how, how far reaching this adjustment is in the body. And two, I think it speaks to innate intelligence that innate will take that adaptation of whatever force comes to it and make these changes sometimes in spite of the doctor's intention. So that's, that's always interesting. I, I I told uh, Dr. Lyons on a, we were talking about what papers we should submit for the journal. And I said, you should do one of how Gonstead can be both mechanistic and vitalistic in its application. And, and that's where that conversation came from. Yeah, I think that's true because I see that difference from patient to patient. That some patients, their results are almost entirely mechanistic. Some patients, their results are almost entirely vitalistic. And then there's a whole another group of patients where they get both. Yeah. <laughs> so it's absolutely true that, yes, we can kind of, that was one of the things I think originally drew me to Gonstead was recognizing that they kind of seem to be able to live in any world they chose and they could move between the worlds. So if you wanted to talk philosophy, the Gonstead doctors could talk philosophy as well as anybody. If you want to talk yeah. science, they could talk science as well as anybody. If you want to talk about art, they could talk about art. And it was like they could move between these different groups because they were embodying the whole of chiropractic. Yeah, uh, I don't think, you know, from my understanding, from listening to Dr. Gonstead talks or talking to people that knew Dr. Gonstead, of course he looked at the spine kind of more from an engineering perspective, but I also think he was very vitalistic in his expected outcomes. You know, that's why they always use the frame uh, or the term get sick people well. I mean, they were expecting whole body changes, but they were also paying a lot of attention to the, you know, just the mechanical change within that segment that they were focused on. So um, it is really complex. You know, it's fun. All those things like that are fascinating to me. That's like, how can how can this technique hold mechanists and vitalists? And as you said, I mean, patients have these different outcomes as well. But it, to me, it goes back to the fact that one, people are interconnected. You know, you can't reduce people down to a single variable. That's why it's hard to do some of these studies on patients. Uh, like how does a T6 adjustment affect everybody? Because it may have different effects from everybody. A T6 subluxation is different person to person. And sometimes it's going to be different within the same person from period to period. Right. You know, so how interconnect it's so the body is so interconnected, so complex. And I'm speaking as a vitalist that it's hard to reduce things down to variables to get repeatable outcomes, you know, but it's fascinating to see how so many people can approach it and have different expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we kind of, I find, I always found in practice, I would do this. I would break it down to, well, in the end, it's just find it, accept it where you find it, adjust yes. it. Yes. <laughs> now I've made it too simple. So I have to complicate it up again, but then at some point it gets overcomplicated and overwhelms me. So I take it right back to find it, accept it, adjust it, leave it alone. Yeah. Between these two extremes constantly. 
Rick, Rick Sapio in that car business school would talk about, you want simplicity on the far side of complexity. And it's like, it's amazing about how you start off and things get complex and you just kind of come back to its simplest form. And there's so many times it's like, it, I think it just tips your hat to the understanding of the wisdom of the body and innate intelligence is I, I sure I would expect to look here. I was always told, you know, from all the different Gonstead books I had and guidelines for adjusting, you know, of course, can like, they have gout, give them unfiltered cherry juice and adjust T6, but, or whatever it was. But I'm like, it's not you, to me, that was the systematic approach. I would take it as potentially look or often as subluxations in this area, but not guaranteed. So I'd never view the body strictly mechanistically and repeatable. It's like it just, but it's sometimes in practice, you know, it's like, man, I got a break here, which is, I had no idea. (laughs) I'm seeing nothing else but the break here and it's not where I would think it would be. And that's where you get into that, find and accept it, you know, just leave it alone. And, and, and it's important to understand that I think sometimes our, we think our educated intelligence, particularly as chiropractors, we know more than the body knows. And I think once you get into that mindset, the body will periodically humble you that, shows you that it knows more than you do. So you're a facilitator when you adjust somebody more so than you are the person that's telling that body how to get well. Yeah. I, I've told this story before. I had a, I had some students following me, shadowing me and at some point in the morning, one of them said, wait a second, you've had three patients with nearly identical symptoms, but you adjusted something different on all three of them. I said, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and it was that whole idea that, that was the line where it's too easy to become too mechanistic that I saw this patient with this symptom and this worked. So on the next patient, you're leading yourself right into, I'm going to adjust that same thing because it worked last time. And that's not, that's right. We'll go there. It had to be, okay, I see that, but say they have a, I don't know, a pain and down the back of their leg. I can think of three things off the top of my head that would do that. So I can't just say, Oh, you have a pain in your back of your leg. That means it's always this. So if I can't do that, then if they've got liver issue, I can't say it's always this or a lung issue. It's always this. I can't do that. I just take in mind, go find where it is. And then when it, when I find it, say to myself, is it possible that that's what's causing it? But I then I realized, I'm not sure there's ever a situation I'd say no. If they had a lung problem and had asthma and I find something in their pelvis, could that be causing their asthma? Sure. <laughs> say no. Well, it goes back to Dr. Reggie Gold, and I was fortunate to hear a lot of his lectures, as some of the people here in this audience were. And he'll talk about water. He's like, you know, you can't. And his point was, you can't prescribe a certain amount of water because everyone's different. You know, you can't say drink eight ounces a day or eight glasses because maybe you need ten. You know, maybe you need five. And he's like, how the hell do I know? And that was basically what Gold would say. So it's like, I would take that into like adjusting. If that was where you found the subluxation and it doesn't make sense, I'm like, how the, how the hell do I know? I'm going to adjust this. And and then that's why the post-check on the next visit is so important. It's like, what change did we get? You know, and taking good notes and having good line of drive is, so that's really important. I have a question for you, David, just on a, I'll just commandeer your podcast here. That's fine. <laughs> uh, you and I have taught students for a long time and I will give a shout out. I mean, there's an amazing group of students that were going through Parker when, when I was there and started up the Gonstead club and kind of really forged it, you know, from teaching, I guess, students, what are some of the common things that helped or what are the common problems students have initially and how do you uh, recommend that they overcome them? 
I think um, one of the common problems is because of the way they learn palpation, they don't know the difference between fixation and subluxation. Mm, okay. So they use those words interchangeably. So yeah. I'll pay, I feel a little fixation and I'm like, that's not a subluxation. Yeah. <laughs> it just isn't moving. Or right. usually we, we were taught the compensation is usually the most symptomatic. I'm most Yes. And my you know, so, and I always told getting back to patient education, I tell students two horses, the farm boy comes out and me, two horses pulling a cart. One's not doing the job. The other one's going to get tired. That's how I explain compensation. Yeah. Patients. Yeah. Particularly they're like, doc, you're on the wrong side. The other side hurts. You're like, well, that's not where the problem is. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think there's there's that side of it. The other one, I think, is just the fact that everybody's trying to learn how to adjust and no two bodies are identical. Yeah. So one of the challenges I have is I'm 6'2 and I'm trying to show some 5'2 girl how to adjust. Well, I don't I've never been a 5'2 girl. I'm yeah. not sure how to do it in that body. So trying to figure out if that was me knowing what I know, how would I try to do this? Um, yeah. Sometimes pulling information from other people I know who are that size, that sh that shape, that whatever, to try to see how do they do it. Um, I think that's the other obstacle. But for me, that's the constant challenge that I think is my challenge is how do I figure out how to adapt this to each individual unique body? But that, yeah. that is the challenge for each person is figure out how can how can you do this best? My my two would be stabilization. Um, you know, they usually are a dominant and stabilization hand. And of course, that's something a practicing chiropractor has got to watch out for. You know, it gets very easy to start <laughs> tipping over versus giving that good adjustment. You, I know. I mean, it's like getting a hitch in your baseball swing in your or in your delivery of your pitch. You, you get these. That's why I think it's so vital to find someone that you're a cohort with that's, you know, I'm fortunate. Like I could go to you. I could go to Dr. Lyons or somebody and just say, Hey, will you watch me? Will you give me feedback? I remember asking Rick Burns that, you know, I want to give him a shout out as well. Learned from Dr. Burns. And then I think that students, um, yeah, they, they start to focus on the stabilization being the driver of the force versus yes. the contact hand they start or they're just over it. Yeah. Or they're just weak on their stabilization. And then I think the second one that I always thought was visual visualization. And I distinctly remember the first time, like I felt like such an idiot, but when someone had an, a, a lateral full spine and they laid it on its stomach on across the view, I'm like, so they're like, that's your line of drive when someone's on, you know, the high low. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and so when you get to those lower lumbars, it got to go back and then what's got a little, you know, and that's when you can start really adjusting those upper thoracics you know, that some people can't adjust because, you know, that line of drive is kind of back into the body versus straight down. You know, sure, that's why I think everyone does a great job of T6. And yeah. the other one for me is like when someone put, and I used to do this with students, put a credit card in the SI joint of a dry spine and say, this is your line of drive, you know. And then once you start to see the spine, and it's more of its alignment, I think that helps. So, I mean, that's that was so key for me in those breakthroughs. And that's usually why I found students. Once they start seeing it, then all of a sudden they'll take off. You know, that's funny. I never really mentioned that to students, but I don't think there's ever an adjustment I've given that I don't visualize in my head what the bone I'm adjusting looks like on the other one below it based on yeah. the sensation and what I'm trying to do. And I, and the clearer that picture is to me, the more likelihood my adjustment will be effective. And if that vision is kind of blurry, my adjustment's going to be a little blurry too. Yeah. And we're going to have trouble with each other. So yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. that is a good point. 
And I think working on your goat, like I remember cervical chair was so hard for me to learn for some reason. Like I could adjust other things, but, you know, just having that, I guess the ability to hang with it. It's like, particularly when you know you can make noise doing a diversified adjustment and you can't get the cervical chair. That's so hard to keep that. I always tell students to do one, two attempts, then go move it and then come back and try again. But it's, I think a lot of students will give up just because it's difficult yeah. and they can make, make noise with something else. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. We'll definitely have you back on to talk philosophy again. And I would love it. Thank you so much, everybody. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Russell for joining me today. Our time was limited due to my schedule and having patients beating down my door, but I promise we'll bring him back in a few weeks and dive even deeper into the topic of practical philosophy. There's one thing that Dr. Russell talked about that I want to make sure we're clear on. He said that patients are attracted to certainty. Please do not confuse certainty with confidence. Confidence can be faked, but certainty cannot. I cannot tell you how many times I've found myself in a situation, like with an acute patient, and I'm not getting the adjustment I'm looking for, nor the result I'm looking for, and I'm not entirely sure where the subluxation is yet. In my first year of practice, panic would have set in when I found myself in that situation. I might ask myself questions like, is that adjustment going to even help this patient? Well, I don't know. And that lack of certainty creates a problem for many of us during that period of time. So here are two suggestions on how to gain certainty. The first is to spend time shadowing other docs. You don't have to be a student to do that either. I still enjoy watching others work, even if it's only to gain one thing that will give me a little more certainty. The other suggestion is to develop a habit of reading. Reading, and not just reading things that support my thinking, but also reading things that challenge my thinking, is how I work to create certainty. In that spirit, let me tell you three books I just finished reading. At any given moment, I'm usually reading three different books, and they don't always coincide. The first book was Fauci and Bargain by Steve Deese and Todd Erzin. This book explores the danger of bureaucrats and the power they wield. It then demonstrates that when a person is fundamentally flawed to their core and they're given a position like this, it has consequences for generations. It was definitely worth the read. The second book was The Diseased Illusion by Jeffrey Bland and Mark Hyman. This book is essentially a treaty on why the Western medicine disease model is wrong, written from a Western medicine perspective. I found the book interesting to see from their perspective how they view this situation. The third book was Killing Sacred Cows by Garrett Gunderson. I highly recommend this book as his primary focus is creating cash flow and he demonstrates quite clearly why it's impossible to save your way to wealth. As he puts it, studies show that if you deprive yourself enough, you just might save enough money and build enough wealth for your heirs to blow through it all in about three years. Hardly my definition of wealth. This book could be a game changer for you if you're making money, but you want to leave your relatives a financial legacy. So again, these are my best two tips for creating certainty. Learn from what others do and read as much as possible. Well, I hope you learned something valuable this week. I have something special planned for you next week, and then we're going to attempt something special for December as I want to cover one specific topic for the entire month. But I'll tell you more about that later. So until next week, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Oh, my God.